the worthy one is revealed. In Revelation chapter 5, verses 6 through 10, we see the revelation of the worthy one who is worthy to open the scroll and what John saw in conjunction with it. So Kelly, could I have you read this for me? And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Thank you. Okay, so the promised one has been revealed, and John sees him. He says, I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent down to all the earth. But then in verse 7, it says, he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So although in chapter, or in verse 6, it says a lamb, John then uses this personal human pronoun he in verse seven so we understand that christ is the lamb of god but that he is human so all of our pictures show the lamb he is not in a lamb form uh, he is in the form of a man but john sees him as the slain lamb the promised sacrifice um, that would atone for the sins of israel so who is this lamb John 1.29, John the Baptist identifies him. He says, the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So John, having a bunch of historical context, the entire Old Testament revelation behind the statement, when he sees Jesus coming towards him, he says, this is the Lamb, the promised one of God, who will take away the sins of the world. And this is prefigured in Genesis 3.21. Immediately after Adam names his wife Eve because she's the mother of all living, God steps in and acts, and he clothes Adam and Eve with garments made of skin. Where did this skin come from? It must have come from some sort of an animal. This would have been the first death. And Adam and Eve probably would have seen this process take place. They would have seen that something must die in order for them to continue living. Now, this garment made of skin didn't save them uh, with their physical life, but it did preserve them spiritually. So they were able to still come into some sort of contact with God, having been atoned for temporally by these garments. They recognize their inability to stand in God's presence, and God gives them some way to approach them. And then for the rest of Old Testament history, we see that man approaches God on the terms of sacrifice. Cain and Abel, Abel brings a proper sacrifice, Cain does not. Abram uh, brings a sacrifice to the Lord. Noah, after the flood, sacrifices to the Lord. This is in recognition that something or someone must die in order for that bridge to be, um, to be reconstructed between man and God. So here our friend Elliot Johnson uh, speaks of this pattern, saying sacrifice was first provided for Adam and Eve as a pattern of redemption. For those called by God, salvation from the immediate consequences of sin came. 
those chosen to partner in service were saved from the conflict with evil, Noah, Abram, Joseph, Moses, David, until their tasks were completed, but none overcame the enemy. So we'll see throughout all of these genealogies that each one of these men died, but none of them came back to life. None of them overcame death to give that death blow to the enemy. None of them were worthy uh, uh, to be the redeemer, to be the redeemer of earth and mankind. So what does he say then of the redeemer? He says, a climactic partner with whom God partnered in person in the incarnation would be the focused promise in the plan of redemption and restoration. When he faced the conflict, he surrendered to death according to God's will, but he overcame death and resurrection. At his first advent, the day of salvation arrived. At his second, the goal of creation would be fulfilled in his rule on earth. With those who were his own, the enemy of God would be finally judged and the creation plan, mankind, restored. <clears throat> so how exactly did Jesus Christ take on this, uh, this weight to be the redeemer of the earth? And uh, first we see him in conjunction or with the curse. And uh, here in Matthew 27, we see that after Jesus was questioned by Pilate, he is mocked, and he's mocked with the curse. And I, I always like to put this right next to the curse in Genesis 3 and, uh, and see just exactly how Christ is the fulfillment of that curse um, in Genesis 3, 15 through uh, 19. So here in Matthew 27, it says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. This crown of thorns, I think, is representative of the curse. Man was cursed and the earth threw him. And part of the curse was that the earth would give up thorns and thistles instead of uh, vegetation. Another would be this scarlet robe that they put on him and then stripped from him. Um, scarlet being the color of blood. Uh, and Adam and Eve were clothed with, uh, with skins uh, in order to be in the presence of God. Uh, I think this verse is a call back to that curse um, so that as we read through the book of Matthew, Matthew has put this in here so that we think back towards those, uh, those uh, words of God in Genesis. And in Galatians 3, Paul identifies Christ with the curse. And he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And this uh, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. This comes from the book of Leviticus. And it stands out like a sore thumb there, honestly. When you're reading it, it doesn't really fit in the context of everything else that you're reading, um, other than the fact that it is in conjunction with redemption and the cleansing with blood. Uh, but God, being the inspirer of scripture, understood that this would become an integral part of the redemption plan 
and he put it into the book of Leviticus so that when we look back on it, we understand that Christ has been God's plan since the beginning. And here we have at the end of Revelation in chapter 22, verses 3 through 4, uh, God's revelation that the curse will be removed at Christ's second coming. And he says, there will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Now, this takes place after the millennial kingdom, at the inauguration of the eternal state. So after Christ has ruled perfectly on this earth, because during his millennial rule, the curse will be uh, subsided, but it will not be completely removed, because there will still be death during the millennial kingdom. That's not our eternal state with God, where there will be no death. There is that 1,000-year kingdom still remaining, where the curse will not affect believers or not affect them in such a strong way, but it will still be in the presence of the earth. And those born of mortals during the kingdom will still have that opportunity to succumb to that curse. So now we have the seven horns, and admittedly, this is a pretty difficult one to figure out. There is not much else in the book of Revelation or elsewhere in scripture that helps us understand this. There are other beasts with horns. Uh, most of them are not good creatures. So I think this is preparing us to juxtapose Christ against the coming Antichrist, that Satan comes as a mimicker of Christ, and he will deceive countless millions. But Christ is the one with true authority. And I think that's what the horns are speaking of. I think they're speaking of authority or power. Uh, and this we'll see in the worship that this is also um, a, a huge emphasis in the worship of Christ by all the heavenly beings is Christ's authority. But in Daniel 8, the horns are used um, by personifying horns as world rulers that would rise up. So horns are used as the symbols for figures of power in Daniel 8 and Revelation 13. Kings and rulers are depicted as horns. The lamb's seven horns, rather than portraying seven kings, portray instead perfect or complete authority in Christ. So this would be my interpretation of what these horns mean. But um, uh, this was probably the hardest phrase in here to really pull apart and find scriptural evidence for, uh, but I'd say Daniel 8 and Revelation 13 come the closest. And the seven eyes of Christ, um, this was a little easier. God's servant, the branch, so in Zechariah 3, 8 through 10. Uh, let's see, Mark, could I have you read this for us? Now listen, Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you, indeed, they are men who are a symbol. For behold, I'm going to bring in my servant, the branch. For behold, the stone that I have set before Joshua, on one stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave an inscription on it, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of the land in one day, of that land in one day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. Thank you. So this is a prophecy in Zechariah 3 of the coming Redeemer, um, specifically of Christ. And uh, this 
Joshua that's spoken of. This was the actual high priest at the time that Zechariah received his prophecy. Uh, so this stone set before Joshua has seven eyes, and later it's uh, stated that uh, in that day, everyone will invite his neighbors and sit under the vine and under the fig tree. This is imagery of the coming kingdom. But it says, behold, I will engrave an inscription on it, declares the Lord of hosts. I will remove the iniquity of the land on that in one day. Uh, this is uh, going to bring up uh, to the Hebrew mind promises of this coming redeemer. For them, the political aspect of this uh, redeemer that he would uh, remove the iniquity of the land of Israel. Uh, he's going to have a much wider scope than that in the New Testament, but for Zechariah in Jewish, uh, in the Jewish world, this promised redeemer was still very Jewish in conception, and uh, it's going to bring to their mind promises specific to the Jewish nation, but that we will understand later as being uh, broader in, uh, not recipient, but in beneficiary. We will receive blessing through the blessings of Israel. So although Israel's land will be redeemed to them, we will share in that blessing as the church. And in Zechariah 4.10, uh, he gives a little more detail, I think, on this. Uh, and this is only a few verses past this as the chapter breaks. And he says, for who has despised the day of small things? But these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These are the eyes of the Lord, which range to and fro through the earth. So he has them identified here as the eyes of the Lord, which are in the earth. <clears throat> and uh, that range to and fro throughout the earth. Uh, also is language that matches our section of scripture there in uh, Revelation 5. And in Proverbs 15, 3, we see this truth also repeated that the eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. So I think this is speaking of the omniscience of Christ, but the omniscience specifically through the Holy Spirit. And in John 16, 7 through 11, uh, Kelly, could I have you read this for me? Yeah, can I just ask a question real quick? Uh, yeah, I was waiting to see if you're going to say it. What is the that last scripture what is uh the term um the one that starts with z zerubbabel uh zerubbabel is um i believe he was the king at that time okay uh, he, he would have been the king of the northern kingdom i believe gotcha i was just curious um i'd have to go back and check that i'm guessing based on the context of zachariah um so let me check on that, and I'll get okay. back to you on it. Okay, no worries. All right. I didn't know if it had more meaning. <laughs> no, it's it's the name of a person. Um, yeah, it's the name of a person, but uh, that's something I could definitely look into more. Okay. All right. So John 16 here. But I tell you the truth, it is your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, and concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me, and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. Thank you. So 
just like we saw the seven lamps of God that were the spirit of God, now we see the seven eyes of the lamb, which are the spirit of God, sent out into all the earth. So these seven eyes, so they're speaking of omniscience, I think are specifically speaking of the work of the Holy Spirit in Christ together, that it goes out into all of the earth and convicts men um, of righteousness and judgment um, over their sin. And the Holy Spirit uh, points to Jesus, and we learn this from Hebrews 9, where it says the Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed, while the outer tabern tabernacle is standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in consciousness or in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So what the writer of Hebrews here is saying, it's an unidentified writer, uh, probably one of the hardest books in all of scripture to identify who wrote it. Um, so we could just say here, uh, what the Holy Spirit is telling us is that the Holy Spirit uh, points towards uh, a more perfect redemption than what was ever defined in the book of Leviticus, uh, where those apply to food and drink and washings and regulations and the body. Um, this is going to be uh, what all of those prefigure is culminated uh, in Jesus Christ. So here we have a qualified redeemer. The only method of freeing the earth from judgment was by the seed, a kinsman redeemer, the anointed one of God, taking on the curse himself. Having done this, he has purchased the earth as a substitution for the penalty that we incurred uh, <clears throat> Uh, he he has paid that, Rachel just joined. Uh, so having done this, he has purchased the earth. At his second coming, he will take possession of that which he has purchased and cleansed. All right, Mark, could I have you read the worthy one revealed here? When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and every tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. Thank you. So here we have the beginning of worship, and we're going to see three rounds of worship that take place in heaven now. Uh, but this begins specifically with the patrons of that redemption in conjunction with the attributes of God that are the four living creatures. So we have the church represented in these 24 elders and the four uh, attributes of God in these very specific angels, the cherubs before the throne, the four living creatures. Um, so the four living creatures, that's a clause or a, uh, a phrase on its own. And then here, the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, uh, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Now, I think this action fell down speaks of both the four living creatures and the 24 elders 
but I think this each one holding a harp, golden bowls full of incense, um, I think this is giving us more information about our subject, the 24 elders here. Uh, they're holding harps and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Um, and we'll see why, um, why I think that. Um, essentially, these harps, I think, will be worshipped for victory. And the golden bowls, which are the prayers of the saints, well, the four living creatures are not the saints, though they might hold these bowls. Um, I, I think it's more reasonable to say these 24 elders are holding the bowls and, um, and these harps. The four living creatures um, are included in this worship, uh, but they're included in every aspect of the worship. So the harp, what exactly does this harp um, bring to mind for students of scripture? And I would say it brings to mind David because David was a harpist and he played before the Lord. And many of the Psalms which were written by David include uh, the harp. Uh, Let's see, we'll start here in 2 Samuel 16, 23. So it came about whenever the evil spirit from God came to Saul, David would take the harp and play it with his hand and Saul would be refreshed and be well and the evil spirit would depart from him. So when Saul offered a sacrifice, which he was not permitted to offer, uh, the spirit of God left him and Samuel anointed David as the new king. Well, Saul was still reigning on the throne of Israel, and David was essentially waiting in the wings. Uh, because Saul was still the anointed king of Israel, David, though he had been anointed as the successor, had no right to off Saul, although he had many opportunities to do so. Interestingly enough, though, after David killed Goliath, Saul took him on as his armor bearer. So it, similar to a golf caddy, I guess, um, he'd follow him around. And, uh, and join him in battle. Well, Saul became very jealous of David. They, Israel began singing songs as they'd come back in victory that Saul killed his thousand and David killed his 10,000. And this made Saul pretty upset um, so that he continually tried to kill David. Um, um, but anyways, all this to say that uh, an evil spirit from God would come upon Saul, and when David played his harp, that spirit would leave Saul, and he would be refreshed and well. Um, and I think this harp that David was playing, he was using to worship God in the presence of Saul. That uh, that's, that reference should be First Samuel. It's not Second Samuel, by the way. Oh, thank you. Where, oh. Yeah, First Samuel, thank you. I've got the, uh, the actual reference down here. So if it ever looks uh, wrong up here, you can look down here and see what the actual reference is. I, uh, I'm not the best copy editor. All right. Um, there are a couple different words for harp in the Old Testament, uh, which gets tricky because in Revelation, we're in Greek. So the word harp is sometimes kind of hard to translate back into the Hebrew. Uh, so we've got two words here, essentially. Um, let's see, one is kanor and one is nabel. Uh, and sometimes they're translated as harp, sometimes it's translated as lyre. Uh, but essentially, we know that David was a harpist, and this would be a 10-stringed instrument. 
Uh, the Psalms are replete with the use of these instruments, including or the use of instruments, including the harp to worship God. And most often this harp is uh, in comes in a list of other instruments that are used. Uh, the harp, the lyre, the timbrel, uh, symbols that are all used in conjunction with worship. One of the only places we ever see it alone is in conjunction with David. Um, so the use of the harp and the lyre alone is nearly unique to the Psalms and David and those Psalms which are the Psalms of David. Um, this harp is used sometimes alone without the accompaniment of other instruments. Just like here in Revelation, um, it's the only instrument spoken of. In Revelation 15:2, these harps reappear. Uh, and this is at the end of the seven seals. Uh, and Revelation 15:2, and I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass holding harps of God. Uh, so here we see that these harps uh, are used together with victory later on in Revelation. And these are specifically the tribulation martyrs, those who are killed for their faith in God and their faith in Christ during the tribulation. So although the church is holding these harps in Revelation 5, it's not something that only the church takes part in. This victory, remember, all who believe in Christ are victorious through him. Uh, that overcomer, being from the Greek verb niko, uh, that is a victor, being super victorious, the overcomers, uh, and that victory comes through Christ. So that resurrection is that victory over death that uh, it, it brings to my mind the verse, though I don't have the reference for it, um, oh death, where is your sting? Uh, because Christ is victorious over death. So the saints who are in heaven during Revelation 5, they are standing before the throne having been victorious over death through Christ's redemption and resurrection. Later on in chapter 15, the tribulation saints who are resurrected stand before the throne with harps. So I think these harps uh, speak of victory. Uh, and the bowls of incense then, uh, the incense offering is a priestly affair, and we know that we are the priesthood of Christ. Um, so Exodus 37 through 8, uh, Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. He shall burn it every morning. This is the table of incense. He shall burn it every morning when he trims the lamps. When Aaron trims the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense. There shall be a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. And remember that those things which are in the temple are copies or mere images of what is the reality in heaven. So we're seeing in heaven here in chapter five, the actual figure that is behind this image given to the Israelites in the temple, that this perpetual incense that's burning before the Lord is the prayers of the saints. Um, so in other words, our prayers should be perpetually before the throne of the Lord. In Psalm 141, 1 through 2, a psalm of David, we see him cry out in a plea to the Lord. Lord, I call upon you, hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. May my prayer be counted as incense before you, the lifting up of my hands as the evening offering. And later on in this psalm, he concludes with, for my eyes are toward you, O God, the Lord, 
In you I take refuge. Do not leave me defenseless. Keep me from the jaws of the trap which they have set for me and from the snares of those who do iniquity. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass by safely. These bowls that the church are holding before the throne of God, which are the incense or the, the prayers uh, of the saints, and the saints being all who believe in God, not just the church, but the Old Testament saints in Israel and the tribulation saints. These are their prayers for justice or for God's kingdom to come. Uh, these are the prayers that are incense before the Lord um, that he will answer. So in Revelation 8, 1 through 3, we see again these bowls. Um, and this is again at the end of the seven sealed judgments. Um, so it says, when the lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, the set, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him. Remember, incense being the prayers of the saints, so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar, which was before the throne. And what does he do with these prayers, which are incense? And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. So prior here to the opening of the first seal, we see worship where the church is standing before the throne of God, holding their prayers uh, before him. And at the end of these seven seals, the angels pour them on the earth. Uh, and all of those prayers then being answered for, uh, for justice. And this first cry for justice comes from Genesis 4, 9 through 11, where uh, here it says, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? He said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. This prayer, uh, which is from the, uh, from the ground, from the blood of Abel, crying out to God, will be answered this cry for justice. Uh, and that is what Christ will come bringing uh, during the tribulation, justice to the earth. So it's here, the patrons of this redemption, the elders have harps. The harp is used for worship and in conjunction with victory. Their prayers and the prayers of all saints and all believers are incense before the Lord. Our pleas for justice will be answered. So what does Larkin then say about this? If you guys remember Larkin, we haven't seen him for a few months. Um, so he says, uh, looking at these verses, when the lamb leaves the throne to take the book, his mediatorial work ceases. He is the mediator right now um, of us to God, where he's, he stands as our advocate in heaven currently. So that work ceases when he takes this um, book from the throne and his redemptive work begins. 
when our kinsman redeemer is handed the book, the title deed to the purchased possession, he has the right to break its seals and claim the inheritance and dispossess the present claimant, Satan. This he will immediately proceed to do as he breaks the seals. Satan is not evicted at once. He contests the claim, and it is only after a prolonged conflict that he is finally dispossessed and cast into the lake of fire. So this is what Christ is worthy to do. He is worthy to take the title deed of the earth. And that title deed is all tied together with redemption. Without redemption, which is uh, a monetary term, to redeem something is to purchase it and, and then to take possession of what you've redeemed. Uh, like when you redeem a gift card, right? You are applying that account to your balance, but you haven't yet, like thinking of iTunes, if you redeem that iTunes card, you haven't yet taken possession of that music, which you have the means to purchase. Um, but that money is locked in to that iTunes account. Here, this redemption is locked in to the title deed of earth, but he has not yet taken possession of that claim. And then this praise, um, this song that these elders and the four living creatures pray or sing rather, uh, as they hold their incense and play their harps. Uh, whoops, let me read that one more time. They say, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood. Men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. I think the praise here is in four specific aspects. He's prayed, or he is praised for his redemptive work, that he was slain, that he purchased for God uh, those redeemed peoples, that he created a kingdom and priests to God, and four, that those kingdom priests he will make reign on the earth. And this praise here is, uh, is detailed, I think, more in Hebrews, again, chapter 9, where Jesus cleanses with a perfect sacrifice. Uh, Mark, could I have you read here in Hebrews 9? And according to the law, one may also say all things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the, uh, the things in the, in the heavens to be cleansed with these. But the heavenly things themselves were better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not, enter, did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as a high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood, that is not his own. Thank you. So we see that forgiveness is not possible without the shedding of blood. Uh, and again, this, this calls all the way back to the beginning of this conflict. Who exactly is the debt owed to? Um, some people teach that uh, Jesus' death on the cross paid a ransom to Satan to take possession of this earth. Uh, that is, I think, heresy. Uh, that's not at all what's happening here. It's that 
this title deed in the hands of God himself. He cannot justly give back this inheritance without payment being made for it. So that Satan is the ruler of this world by having the allegiance of mankind. Uh, God himself holds the title deed to this earth. It is God's claim. It is God's creation. God is able to give it to whomever he'd like, but he is also a just God. He cannot give it where it is not deserved, where it is not earned. Uh, and Christ here has paid the penalty uh, that we incurred when we lost this title deed. So this title deed is in the hands of God, and Christ will receive it from God after having paid the price to redeem it. He is our substitution, not our ransom. Um, so Christ did not uh, offer an imperfect sacrifice like the Jews, the Jews just um, implementing a mere copy of what's truly in heaven, but Christ went to the source. He paid the penalty that we were being taught throughout history that we needed um, this payment. He came and he made that final payment so that the sacrifice would not be continual but once for all time for all mankind. So in Hebrews 9, 26 to 28, um, the author of Hebrews continues. Mark, can you read this for me? Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Thank you. So I think in the mind of whomever wrote, whoever wrote Hebrews, uh, this heavenly scene may be in mind that Christ himself will appear a second time without reference to sin, having already paid that uh, at his first uh, at his first coming, John sees him as a lamb having been slain. The slaying is completed. That payment has already been made. Now he comes uh, a second time for salvation. This is the salvation of those who have been redeemed. So our salvation is still forthcoming, though the payment has been made to God. <laughs> And in 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5, uh, it identifies the church as a holy priesthood. Remember, he has made them to be a kingdom and a priest to God. So he says in 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5, and coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is a choice and precious in the sight of God, speaking of Christ there, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And in uh, verses 9 through 10, we're identified as a holy nation. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter, if you remember, 
was the apostle to the Jews. His uh, ministry was primarily in Jerusalem. So he is speaking to dispossessed Jews here. And he is reminding them that as members of the church, as members of the body of Christ, they have, they are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, and a chosen race. But they're a people for God's own possession, that they might proclaim his excellencies of him who has called them out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And we see that these truths that Peter is speaking ought to lead one's heart to worship. Um, and that is exactly what's happening before the throne of God, that these truths about Christ lead all of heaven into a spirit of worship. And uh, one of my professors likes to say that worship is the proper response to truth. When truth is spoken, worship should be evoked. And that is what is happening here in heaven. The truth of who Christ is, is clearly stated and worship ensues. And it's a reasonable worship, a rational worship. Uh, it's intelligent worship. Uh, his attributes are uh, clearly stated. It's not random words spoken out or random emoting but it's a clear recognition of who he is and what he has done. Uh, and the, the fourth aspect here of, of what Christ is praised for in the song of these uh, four living creatures and the 24 elders, in Revelation 26, uh, we see that we will reign with Christ. He says, blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. All right, so here, uh, Charles Ryrie, uh, speaking on uh, the lamb that was prepared, um, what exactly did Christ do um, that he is being worshipped for here? Um, Mark, could I have you read this? The roots of God's plan of redemption existed before the foundation of the world, 1 Peter uh, 1, 19 through 20. Even before man was created, the lamb was provided. Certainly before man sinned in the Garden of Eden, the lamb had already uh, been provided. God did not, did not have to scurry around, seeing what plan he could come up with when Adam and Eve rebelled against him. The lamb, without spot or blemish, had already been provided in the purpose and the grand plan of God. Thank you. And one more here. The oops. In the fullness of time, God sent the lamb. He lived a sinless life and thus proved to be spotless and fully qualified as the acceptable sacrifice for sin. He died, and by that death, he paid for the sins of the whole world. Although the per personal appropriation of that payment comes through faith. He reconcil reconciled the world to himself, yet to make that applicable to me personally, I have to be reconciled to God through faith. Thank you. So we see that these 24 elders before the throne have been reconciled to God. And how is that application of Christ's payment made onto their account? It's through faith in Christ. Uh, the, the Philippian jailer asked Paul, what must I do to be saved? And Paul responds, believe in the Lord. What does he say? 
believe in the Lord and you will be saved. Believe in the Lord God and you will be saved. Uh, in other words, believe in the Lord and you will be saved. Um, belief, faith is the only uh, is the only way for us to receive this payment that Christ has made on our behalf. And without faith, uh, we cannot be saved. Thank you.